From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. That legacy creates an up, a sort of an uphill battle, uh, an unlevel playing field, an artificial headwind for black students. And that's why we have affirmative action. Welcome back to the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. Earlier this year, the United States Supreme Court rejected affirmative action at colleges and universities. Civil rights expert Donald Jones weighs in on the issue. Good morning, Don. Good morning. Welcome back to The Explainer. Well, it's exciting to be here. It's been a minute. So let's dive into Students for Fair Admission v. Harvard. So what was the argument? What's at stake here? Well, I think what's at stake is the future of diversity in higher education. And I think that it's important to understand that equal educational opportunity is essential to the project of democracy. And everyone seems to agree with that. But what we're disagreeing about is the meaning of what equal educational opportunity is. And there's a long history of that, you see. And uh, in order to understand this issue, you have to use an historical lens. Without historical context, it doesn't make sense. But you see, affirmative action is as traditional as, at least since the 19th century, as apple pie. Uh, It begins with, in 1870, with the passage or the enactment of the 14th Amendment. And the goal of the 14th Amendment, as we learn from cases like Slaughterhouse, was the equalization of citizenship for blacks. Blacks were slaves. The goal was to raise them up to the level of citizen. And to do that, you needed to take affirmative measures uh, to protect them. Uh, For example, you had to give them education. Howard University was started in order to give them. That was an affirmative measure. In addition to that, we had to give them the right to vote and protect the right to vote. Northern troops were brought to the South. So the whole project of Reconstruction was an affirmative effort uh, to to bring about equality. Equality wasn't simply a matter of procedure. It was a question of substance and of, and of, of making, doing things to protect blacks from the hostility that, that they knew former slaves would face. And uh, the setting of slavery helps to helps understand that backdrop is important because while slavery formally ended, the impact of slavery did not. And we still experience that legacy in, in education. So, for example, even today, about half of black students attend racially homogenous schools where at least 75 percent of the students are black uh, or Hispanic. And there is a significant number of schools in which the number, the percentage of blacks is 90 percent or more. So the legacy of segregation is real. And that legacy creates an up, a sort of an uphill battle, uh, an unlevel playing field, an artificial headwind for black students. And that's why we have affirmative action. I think it was Johnson who says uh, you can't tell a man that uh, and today we would say a man or a woman. We can't tell him tell a person that uh, you've been chained for 300 years and all of a sudden we're going to release the chackles and tell you to run the race. You can't say that and be fair. And that's still true. And it was that 
uh, understanding of our historical uh, debt history as a country that we inaugurated affirmative action. And for the last uh, at least 20 years, the Supreme Court uh, has uh, the Supreme Court ruling in Grutter has allowed and permitted and facilitated affirmative action. And what this case represents is a reversal of 20 years of what we thought was settled precedent. It turns back the clock of our civil rights at least 20 years, possibly back to the 1950s. And uh, the problem comes about uh, how, do, how do we get here? How does this happen? Why, why is this happening now? And I think what you've got to understand is that the, the attack on affirmative action is not new. It's been going on for at least 50 years. It's been going on since a case uh, called Bakke versus Board of Education in 1977. And what, what Bakke represented was the, the, the first time we see a particular narrative, there's a story. And the story is, is that blacks are less qualified than whites. That's why they get lower board scores. Uh, another aspect of this is that whites are innocent victims. And so these they're blacks who are less qualified and they're getting preferential treatment and whites who are more qualified are being victimized. Now, the last piece to that, which is most insidious, is, is that when, when we consider race, when we, and, and race is considered not based on whether or not uh, uh, whites created slaves, it's considered because we need diversity. We need people from different backgrounds. And so when we consider race for that purpose, regardless of the purpose, the narrative is, is that this is the same as segregation in the old South, that whites are being treated the same way as blacks were treated in the 1950s South. And what's wrong with that is, is that it lacks historical context. In context, when blacks tried to go to an educational institution, which was white, they were meted by mobs. They were beaten. They were uh, intimidated. They were threatened with lynching merely because they tried to get an education. Uh, they've experienced something we would call stigma. Now, that is missing when a missions office says, well, we want to consider race the same way we consider whether a person came from Idaho, where the person plays a violin. Where is the stigma from considering race for purpose of diversity? That, that context is missing. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason that it's missing is because the court is using a radically narrow vision of equality. The court's vision of equality is radically individualistic and colorblind. Now, when I say radically individualistic means this, when the court looks at the parties before it, it doesn't see uh, a person as any, having any color, any age, or any gender. They see a genderless, colorless, ageless individual and individuals have no history. And so for their purposes, uh, it's not relevant what the history is. So they simply erase it. With that as their horizon, they can't see what the need is in the first place. And so they equate in a program which is designed to achieve diversity with programs which attempted to achieve systemic discrimination in the old South under Jim Crow. Got it. Got it. Uh, let's dig into Justice Sotomayor. She was not yes. happy with this decision. Can you talk a little about her dissent? Well, Justice Sotomayor does the opposite of what her baseline, and, and constitutionally we talk about baseline, her baseline is the racism, the segregation, the experience that blacks, the, the experience that blacks had in slavery and in Jim Crow and try and trying to show how those historic patterns have created 
current conditions. For example, she talks about the disadvantage blacks have in schools, the disadvantage blacks have as a result of discipline, uh, disparate discipline in schools and disparate treatment in the criminal justice system, how all those factors create a situation where blacks cannot get to the starting line as easily or as well. Uh, as as their counterparts. And not, and not only that, but the whole idea that in a country that is a democracy, you need leaders from all different walks of life. And one role of diversity is to create a path to leadership that is visible to children to, to, of, of all walks of life and how this changes that. It, 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 it's, it's almost like you put a roadblock, a boulder in that path. Right. So, so this is not achieving equality. What is achieving is taking us back to is a, a, a period in which, in like in the 1950s, which universities were not all white, but in, but virtually all right, white. Right. Um, so there are bits uh, in the ruling that allow for schools to continue to consider race yes. in admitting practice, even though Sotomayor called it thin gruel and likened it to putting lipstick on a pig. Well, I think that's interesting because uh, when in 1996. Under a case called Hopwood, uh, California University of Higher Learning weren't able to consider race. Their enrollment of blacks went down 50 percent. Uh, Hispanics made up 52 percent of the possible applicants in California. They're, they made up only 15 percent of those applicants at, at schools like Berkeley. And so we have seen this before. This is like deja vu. We've already seen what happens. You see, Blackman said it this way. He says, in order to get past race, we must consider race. There is no other way. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem in that you can get rid of race and you can say that there are alternative measures, but the alternative measures will not produce results. And the whole piece, the whole theme of the court's opinion is they're interested in quality of opportunity only. And they don't they're like an ostrich. We don't care about results. We don't look about results. But I think people in a real society should care. We should care about whether or not our universities look like America. And the quarter set us on a path when they will likely cease to do that. Right. Hmm. Um, so six justices, Justice Brown recused herself because of her connection to Harvard, um, issued opinions on the ruling, including offering strikingly different takes on the landmark 1954 Brown v. Board of Education. Yes. What struck you in these opinions? There was some well, very that's heated a language. wonderful point. I think you could argue that the case is really about the meaning of Brown. What Brown was, I think, if there's such a thing as the canon in constitutional law, Brown is our canon. It's the case that we read to understand uh, what our core concerns about equal justice are. The meaning of Brown to, to me, to, to the civil rights community, to most liberals was uh, captured by the phrase where the court says, segregation hurts the hearts and minds of children, black children, in ways never to be undone. It hurts the hearts and minds of black children. From a realist standpoint, from a, a standpoint that looks at history, uh, then that is a that is a coherent reading of Brown. It's the only reading of Brown. But if you erase history, which the court does, uh, then from the court's point of view and from a court of view of, of colorblindness, then Brown was not about black children at all. Brown is about children, individual children who are classified. And so for the court, the problem was uh, there was a 
dial test and they asked the child, what is the good dial? Which is a, and I would say it's a white dial, which is a dial that looks like you. It's the black dial. And so what they were confronting was a stigma that segregation created. And so they looked at it in historical context. Segregation was something that caused stigma for black children. The court erases all that. And they're acting as if a, a, a program in which an admissions office considers race as an element of diversity somehow it creates a, a stigma similar to what was done when Governor Orwell Forrest would stand on the courthouse steps and tell a black person, you don't belong here using the N word, go home. Mm -hmm. And they treat those two very different situations as moral equivalents, which they are not due to the court's radical use of colorblindness and a use that has, is unprecedented. We, we, we've not seen anything. So in Grutter, the, the same uh, court using the same uh, equal protection clause found that we needed affirmative action and that they said that this is the difference. They said that context matters. And so in Grutter, they considered context. And because of the context in which we're a nation that needs leaders from all walks of life, they said, we're going to give deference to the university. Uh, we find adversity a compelling reason and give deference to the university in terms of whether or not they can consider race in pursuit of that diversity. And here, they say, well, we won't consider context at all. Mm -hmm. That's what's radical about this decision is it's, it's, it's complete denial of the relevance of history. Okay. Well, I don't want to let you go. I feel like a lot of this stuff uh, ties in with your upcoming book, The Presumption, Race and Injustice in the United States. What's the book about? Well, I think most of us who've been paying attention recognize that Black identity has been criminalized throughout much of our history. And even today, certainly uh, tacitly, many, there is this attitude, this mentality that being Black and young uh, is somehow to be associated with criminality. And so we realize that we have this issue in which Black identity has been criminalized. My book is about why. Why has this happened? How did we get here? And so uh, while many people attempt to understand this problem as a problem of the attitudes of, of a few deviant individuals, I want to say that this is something that goes back to the core of American history and, Amer and, our, and our, our social life. It goes back to slavery and it has to do with the idea that, that in slavery, uh, criminality and race we're not together as a concept, as an idea. And even today, when you say words like crime, when you say words like uh, violence, say black crime, black violence, it has a different meaning. Mm -hmm. So it's about how the meaning of race, the meaning of blackness has been uh, not together with dangerousness or criminality. How did that happen? Okay. And how are we still, why are we still struggling right, right. with this, this dilemma? Sounds great. We'll look forward to it. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you. All right. See you around. Thanks for joining us for The Explainer and a whole new season of Explaining. If you enjoy our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at theexplainer at miami.edu. Our show was engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uges. Today's episode is sponsored by Miami Law's latest environmental speaker series, Wetlands Law Event, Emerging Trends and Challenges, on November 3rd. 
For more information, go to www.law.miami.edu. Thank you.